0: You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible.
1: What is the Facebook exactly? It's an online directory that connects people through universities and colleges through their social networks there
0: and now there's a new form of cyber matchmaking, college networking websites. Is this perhaps the next big thing? Mark, if somebody was to put the question to you about the the magnitude of what you think you've launched, how big do you think your product or your service
1: is? Well, it's impossible to tell. When we first launched, we were hoping for, you know, maybe 400, 500 people, and now we're at 100,000 people, so who knows where we're going next? We're hoping to have many more universities by fall, hopefully over
0: 100 or 200. And from there, we're going to launch a bunch of
1: site applications, which should keep people coming back to the site and maybe could make something cool. Today, Facebook has nearly 2 billion daily users and an annual revenue larger than the GDP of some countries. And recently, the company even set up its own version of a Supreme Court. Dubbed the Oversight Board, This panel currently consists of about 20 former political leaders, activists, and journalists from around the world. These individuals were picked by Facebook to deliberate on the company's toughest content decisions. They've weighed in on posts promoting hydroxychloroquine to treat COVID-19, posts of people wearing traditional Dutch Christmas costumes, which also happens to incorporate blackface, and posts featuring photos of uncovered breasts in the spirit of raising breast cancer awareness. But in the past few months, the Oversight Board has had to grapple with their most weighty content decision thus far, whether or not to permanently ban President Trump from Facebook for encouraging violence during the Capitol riot on January 6th. Now it is up
2: to Congress to confront this egregious assault on our democracy. And after this, we're gonna walk down, and I'll be there with you, we're gonna walk down to the Capitol, and we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women. Thanks for joining our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. I'm Darrell West, Vice President of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution, and co-author with Brookings President John Allen of a new book about AI entitled "Turning Point." policymaking in the era of artificial intelligence. On January 7th, the day after a mob stormed the U.S. Capitol building, Facebook banned then President Donald Trump on grounds he incited violence through an online video and a statement posted on the social media site. He has remained barred from Facebook and Instagram in the four months since that time. To deal with the decision on whether to make that ban permanent, and provide guidance for other world leaders, the company created an oversight board composed of 20 experts to make recommendations regarding whether its ban was the correct decision and also offer advice on social media suspensions when the individual in question is a political leader. Recently, the oversight board reached its decision, which was to uphold the initial ban, but throw the decision back to Facebook on whether the company should extend the ban indefinitely. It asked Facebook to decide within six months and provide clear guidance regarding its standards for bans and the length of time warranted for particular offenses. To discuss the oversight board decision, we are pleased to be joined by Quinta Jurisic. She is a fellow in our Governance Studies program at Brookings and the former managing editor of the Lawfare blog. She also is co-host of the Arbiters of Truth podcast, which deals with disinformation and misinformation. She writes about many challenges of life in the digital era. Quinta, welcome to our Brookings Tech Tank podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
2: So I know that you've been following the Facebook Oversight Board decision very closely. Before we get into the actual decision, can you describe this Oversight Board, how it operates, and what Facebook asked the board to do.
0: So the board has actually been around for a little while, and it predates the Trump decision. Mark Zuckerberg first announced the idea for the board in 2018. Uh, The first members were announced in the spring of 2020, and it officially started work that fall, and it released its first decisions in late January 2021. As you said, it's currently 20 members. It is slated to expand to up to 40, so it should be getting even bigger at some point in the future. It's often been compared to a court. I think Mark Zuckerberg first described it as a kind of Supreme Court for Facebook. I think this analogy is is useful in sort of giving a very quick explanation to people of just what this sort of strange idea is. On the other hand, it's also, I think, flawed in a lot of ways we can discuss. So it's nominally independent. It operates based on a trust set up by Facebook, which is meant to give it some independence. But it's set up to review content moderation decisions taken by Facebook and Instagram. It can make binding decisions on Facebook's actions that Facebook has said it's committed to follow. And it can also make non-binding advisory recommendations, sort of suggestions for broader policy issues that Facebook might consider. And after the board rules, Facebook then has 30 days to decide how it's going to respond to the board's ruling. I should also say listeners to this podcast might enjoy Lawfare's Facebook Oversight Board blog. We've been tracking all of its decisions and have statistics and analysis which is on lawfareblog.com backslash fob uh, blog so once the so there there are two ways that a case can go to the board the first is that a user can appeal to the board about a decision to uh, by Facebook to take content down initially that was the only permissible category of user appeals but actually in April the board decided that it would also allow users to appeal uh, decisions by facebook to leave content up So if you see something you don't like on Facebook, you could potentially appeal it. And second, Facebook can also directly refer a decision to the board and the board can then decide whether to accept. And the latter route is what happened in the Trump case. So as you say, after the the Capitol riot, Facebook suspended Trump's account indefinitely, nominally in response to two posts he made sort of arguably egging on the Capitol rioters the day of the riot, January 6th. Then on January 21st, so the day after Trump left office, Facebook referred the suspension to the board to review. And specifically, it asked two questions. First, whether under Facebook's own standards, it had correctly decided to indefinitely ban Trump from the site. And second, a kind of a broader advisory question. Any observations or recommendation the board had on suspensions when the user is a political leader? So that brings us up to the board's decision. And as you said, the board sort of uh, split the baby a little bit. It said that Facebook had uh, been correct in deciding that Trump's posts on January 6th had violated its policies. But it kind of dinged the board on the indefinite suspension option and said that It needs to go back, take a look at its rules again, and then in six months, make another decision about what it wants to do with Trump's account.
2: So how do you feel about the existence of something like the Oversight Board itself? Is this a good way to make decisions on something like a Trump ban or the ban of any global leader? Was it set up in the right way? Did it have the proper membership and mission?
0: It's a great question. There have been a lot of criticisms of the board. One prominent argument is that it's, you know, essentially a a PR stunt for Facebook. And so in this argument, you know, the the view is, well, it's just a way for Facebook to kind of deflect responsibility and perhaps distract from the possibility of real regulation. Another prominent argument is that there's not enough diversity among board members. Facebook obviously is a global platform, but about 25% of the board members are American. So that that's one critique. There have also been critiques you know, that there aren't enough board members from areas of the world like the Middle East or Africa. And there have been arguments about diversity in other ways. There are a lot of lawyers on the board. And if you're setting up a, a court-like system, lawyers are sort of what you want. But there's also an argument that, well, you know, this isn't really a court, right? It's a sort of an... Ombudsman of some kind. And maybe what you really want are technologists or people who have history, you know, looking at trust and safety operations for platforms and have experience sort of dealing with content moderation questions specifically. I think the question of mission is a really interesting one because. In many ways, it feels like the board is still figuring its mission out. As I mentioned earlier, it began by only allowing users to appeal takedown decisions, and now users can also appeal decisions to leave up content. My Arbiters of Truth co-host, Evelyn Dueck, who's a lecturer at Harvard, has written a lot about this, and I do think it's a notable example of how the board sort of scope has expanded. I'd also really encourage listeners to read Dueck's lawfare piece on the Trump decision, which is titled, The Oversight Board's Trump Decision is Just the Start. She makes a really good point that part of what the board did in kicking the case back to Facebook is essentially to say that Facebook, rather than the board, should be answering the hard questions about moderating content, right? That Facebook kind of went to the board and said, okay, tell us what to do When we have a hard decision to make about, you know, a leader who seems to be inciting violence and the Facebook Oversight Board sort of said, well, you know, you're the one (laughs) who should be making that decision. And it, that has gotten a lot of praise from some commentators saying that you know the the board did the right thing and putting the burden on Facebook itself and forcing it to take responsibility. Dueck's argument is that the whole reason Facebook set up the board is to tell it how to moderate content, and so perhaps the board passed the hot potato back when it when it shouldn't have, but I think this argument really speaks to how much we're still figuring out what the board is, and by we, I mean the members of the board, Facebook, you know commentators, journalists, everyone, you know. What is its relationship to Facebook? Is it independent? Is it a court? Is it something else? Everyone is figuring out their answers to those questions. And so I don't think I have a a firm answer right now of whether it was, you know, whether its mission is proper because that really seems to be evolving. I do think that the Trump decision suggests that at least the board is taking this process really seriously and putting a lot of effort into it. And so it will be interesting to see how it develops and whether it ends up being a sort of viable model for content moderation problems going forward.
2: Those are certainly uh, great points, and we are seeing lots of uh, debates and lots of different opinions on uh, whether the Oversight Board is the way to go uh, as well as uh, the actual decision uh, that it made. So in thinking about the Oversight decision, Do you feel it made the right decision in upholding the initial ban, not making a decision on a permanent ban, and asking Facebook itself to make the ultimate decision on Trump?
0: I had kind of wondered whether the board would try to split the baby in some approach, you know, leaving Trump's account down, but criticizing Facebook on some aspect of the decision keeps the board from making a potentially dangerous decision by handing Trump back his account, but also helped, you know, kind of shore up its legitimacy by showing we're not just a PR tool, we mean business, we're going to force Facebook to make real changes. I will say it does make me wonder a little bit why Facebook didn't just ban Trump permanently in the first place, like, say, Twitter did, other than whether they were simply trying to punt that decision to the board. In the, the the matter of whether they made the right decision, I think there are two ways to look at it. One is whether this was a good decision in terms of, you know, what it means for American democracy and the health of civic discourse. And the other is whether it was a good decision in terms of, you know, was it correct given under Facebook's rules, given that Facebook is an enormous platform that serves as such a huge part of our civic space and that we don't want to be behaving in an arbitrary way. So to answer the first question, in terms of civic health, I I think Facebook would have been justified in a permanent ban and the Facebook Oversight Board would have been justified in enforcing one. Trump is really, I would argue, kind of a, a malignant presence. He not only in how he incites violence but just in how he draws attention from issues that are arguably more important you know it, i think we even see this in the the news cycle around the facebook oversight board just the fact that we're talking about this is a demonstration of how much power he has to command attention and now you know we're all kind of sucked back into the trump news cycle and we have to do this all over again in 6 months when when facebook decides how to handle it so from that perspective i would say it does feel a little bit like a punt to me. And I think you could make a very good argument that they should have just bit the bullet and banned him permanently, you know, which they could have done by saying, okay, Facebook, we didn't like how you did this indefinite ban, but it's all good. We're just gonna make this ban permanent. Here are some guidelines for you going forward. The the second way to look at this, as I said, is the sort of the question of how we want Facebook to govern itself. And So the decision to take action against Trump, according to the Facebook Oversight Board, was justified under Facebook's rules. And under the reading of the rules, that that seems right to me. So Facebook had said that Trump's posts about the riot violated the platform standards on uh, what what it calls dangerous individuals and organizations, uh, which says that users should not post content that, quote, expresses support or praise for groups, leaders or individuals involved in violating events. So they'll, they'll designate an event as violating. And the Capitol riot was designated as a violating event. And if you look at the text of Trump's post, it seems really clear to me that indeed he was expressing support and encouragement. That said, the, the board also, and I think rightly, uh, criticizes Facebook for elements of the decision to ban Trump that it argues were arbitrary. Indefinite suspension is not a penalty that had ever been used by the platform before. It typically either will suspend people for a set length of time or just ban them outright. And there's a lot of interesting information in the board decision that shows that Facebook seems to have been kind of arbitrary in how it handled Trump's posts in the past. There's some statistics in there that that are new where we learned that Facebook apparently had overturned uh, 20 instances in which moderators had flagged Trump's posts to be taken down, and the platform eventually decided that those posts should be left up. There may be a good explanation for that. To me, it smells a little bit like they're using a separate standard for Trump without, you know, acknowledging that that's what they're doing. And so, for a platform that plays a, such a huge role in regulating our civic sphere, you sort of want there to be some level of consistency and regularity. You know, we we don't want Mark Zuckerberg to sort of be in control in an arbitrary way. And so, in this sense, I think. That the board's demand that Facebook address that lack of transparency, um, as you say, is a really good thing. The board demanded a public explanation of rules for high high-profile users, public documentation for the special procedures it uses for influential users, and it asked for a, a comprehensive review of how Facebook might have contributed to the narrative of election fraud that contributed to the Capitol riot. And so I do think that this is a good example of how the board could potentially be a a sort of a useful forcing mechanism to demand transparency and sort of regularity in moderation enforcement on Facebook, even though there's definitely a part of me that sort of wishes that they'd just handled this and gotten it out of the way.
2: So this case involved Donald Trump, but what about leaders outside the United States? As you have pointed out, Uh, Facebook is a global platform It has 2.7 billion users that operate in many different countries. Uh, Some of these nations are democratic, while some are authoritarian. Are you comfortable with the process Facebook has set up to deal with leadership situations outside the United States, especially leaders who operate outside of the framework of a democratic system? So that would include Presidents Putin and Xi, as well as leaders in India, Turkey, uh, Myanmar, and elsewhere.
0: I think this is a really important question. Another example is, say, Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte, who has also been accused of inciting violence on social media. And I do think that the fact that Facebook not only asked the board to weigh in on Trump's specific suspension, but also on the bigger question of how to handle leaders inciting violence is really important, precisely for the reasons that you say. So, before now, there's really been confusion and ambiguity about what Facebook's standards are. The board decision actually unveiled some new information that Facebook had a a separate system that it calls cross-checking for handling content moderation decisions from influential figures. Hopefully, the Facebook Oversights Board's recommendations to Facebook should help address this problem. The board specifically said that all users should be held to the same content policies, but unique factors must be considered in assessing the speech of political leaders that, you know, posts by heads of state and influential figures could carry what the board called a heightened risk of encouraging legitimizing or inciting violence and it also demanded more transparency in terms of how rules are applied to individual users. I also think it's worth noting that the the board demanded protections for users when operating under repressive governments saying that, you know, Facebook needs to resist pressure from governments to silence their political opposition. I think that's important because, you know, one of the useful rules when thinking about how you might want platforms to moderate content is to sort of turn that back on itself and say, okay, you know, In the hands of a bad actor, how could this be misused, right? So you could imagine, say, President Putin turns to Facebook and says, you know, I really think Alexei Navalny is inciting violence here. It's important to have safeguards so that Facebook doesn't sort of create a situation in which it ends up having to silence opposition leaders under under false pretenses. So I do think that While the existing system was incredibly flawed, the board has kind of set out some markers for what we should look for in the future in terms of more transparency and accountability from Facebook. I am hopeful that this will kind of set a marker and maybe move us toward a place where Facebook is a little more open and more consistent and importantly consistent across different areas of the world in how it regulates content from political leaders.
2: So what do you foresee for the future of Donald Trump in terms of his communications platforms and communications impact? His office already has indicated he has set up a website with a blog that will give him a chance to express his views on a wide range of issues. But it is hard to imagine his own site having the reach or impact of a Facebook and or Instagram. It certainly uh, will not raise as much money as if it were on Facebook, and it clearly will not have the ability to target ads. How will a band that could last six months or longer affect Trump's impact on the 2020 elections or his interest in running for president in 2024.
0: This is sort of the big question. And Politico has had some interesting reporting to this effect. The day before the board's decision came out, it reported that Trump had been planning to use Facebook for fundraising when he returned to the platform, assuming that he would be returned. And the day of the ban, Politico then reported that Trump's associates were, and I quote, panicked by the ruling because they had kind of been depending on Access to Facebook's uh, ad targeting mechanisms in order to raise money for uh, going forward and potentially for a 2024 run. So, I do think that it's important to keep in mind that Trump losing access to Facebook in the near term could have a real effect on him in terms of the financial possibilities. On the other hand, I also think that it's important to keep in mind that, you know, Twitter was really Trump's platform rather than Facebook. If you think of Trump's presidency, you know, it really was the presidency of Twitter that... That was the place where he sent out all those missives and sort of ruined every reporter's day by creating, you know, crazy new crises every minute. His Facebook was not used that way. It cross posted his tweets and it was used for ad targeting, I believe, but it wasn't sort of his platform. And so, I do wonder whether we're kind of inflating the importance of the Facebook ban retroactively because Twitter isn't going through a review process. And that, you know, if if Trump were still on Twitter but lost Facebook, that the conversation might look very different. As you say, Trump has made strides toward putting together his own website. He, he has a, a site that's called from the desk of Donald J. Trump where he sends out kind of Quasi tweets. It does seem as of this morning, May 6th, that he or someone pretending to be him created a Twitter account that was basically just going to be reposts of his posts from that blog, but Twitter quickly banned it although uh, the platform did say that it's fine for people to repost his posts sort of one by one. But there's also a, a reporter for NBC News, Brandy Zadrozny, went through and looked at the statistics for to what extent people are really interacting with Trump's posts on his new blog. And it seems like it's not doing very well. You know, it's not really a substitute for uh, the presence that he had on a platform like Twitter and Facebook. And so I think that that is a... Really good demonstration of how deplatformings like this do have enormous power. And even though Trump has sort of tried to create a replacement and try to insert himself back in the conversation, there's a limited amount that that can do as a kind of just an isolated blog that people can choose to interact with or
2: not. So It will be interesting to look forward six months from now when Facebook will need to deal with the issue of making the ban permanent or not, that basically uh, takes us uh, through early November. So I guess uh, that will be when we will get a more definitive answer to uh, that question. Now, beyond the issue of Trump himself, do you feel American democracy has adequate safeguards in place for future candidates and future leaders who may push the boundaries of free speech and either incite violence or come close to inciting violence? Are there things we should be thinking about in order to safeguard the future? Do social media platforms have too much power? Are there ways we need to limit that power? Do we need new laws to deal with these types of challenges?
0: This is really the question, I think. And I would argue that Trump's, the experience of Trump's presidency has shown that American democracy does not have adequate safeguards in place. The difficulty is that a lot of the the reason for that is, you know, that pesky thing called the First Amendment. And so you could imagine, you know, a world in which We created some kind of law or or some kind of structure to limit what political candidates could say, but that would immediately raise constitutional questions. And so part of the effect of that is that I would argue we end up pushing a lot of the, the effort to limit what people can say to social media platforms, to private actors, because they aren't constrained. By the first amendment in the same way. And so you end up in this strange situation where, you know, Mark Zuckerberg isn't an elected official, even the Facebook Oversight Board members aren't elected. I don't think that they should be, you know, the people who should really be weighing in here. But they've ended up here because of a sort of cascading set of institutional failures where nobody, you know, from from the FBI to Congress to Congress again during the second impeachment, to, you know, Republican officials who refused to sort of push back on Trump's calls of election fraud, really wanted to step in. And, you know, legal institutions were limited in stepping in because of the First Amendment. And so we end up in this bizarre situation where we're we're talking about, you know, a decision by a court-like entity that is set up by a private company. That is one solution to the problem, right, is, you know, to say, okay, Private entities are going to be the way that we in the United States can address, you know, these problems of sort of dangerous, violent, inciting speech in a sort of really a political environment that's really a tinderbox. So, okay, let's create internal checks. To hold platforms more accountable. And the Facebook Oversight Board is one model. You know, we we don't know if it will work in the long run, but it is one option. As part of that, you could also say, okay, you know, if private platforms are going to be at the forefront of this, we want more transparency from them. Right. Maybe we want Congress uh, could legislate to demand, you know, sort of transparency reports from platforms. There are. Other models for legislation, including antitrust, you know, proposals to kind of break up big platforms like Facebook, I'll say I'm personally a little skeptical on to what extent that would solve content moderation problems. But it is something uh, that is out there and has garnered a lot of interest. The other option is, you know, to to rethink the First Amendment. And there's a a lot of interesting work out there. Genevieve Lakier at the University of Chicago has done some really interesting work saying, you know, that the the current model of how we think about the First Amendment is sort of cramped and we should have a more expansive view of what the what the amendment might require of private entities that play a significant role in sort of curating the public sphere. So that's one option. I think that's the kind of the moonshot option. But I'd also say that, you know, the underlying problem here. Is, you know, all of these are ways to address the underlying problem of political divisions and radicalization in the Republican Party and a sort of environment where truth and falsehood mix very, very fluidly. And one political party is not committed to separating those. So the, the really, you know, if you wanted to strike at the core of this, I would say you'd need to address that political problem. Everything else on top is kind of a Band-Aid. That said, you know, that political problem is pretty intractable. And I, for one, don't have any solutions to address it. So maybe Band-Aids are the best we can do in the meantime.
2: Well, those are certainly all interesting uh, possibilities. Uh, You know, one option is private entities placing limits on themselves. Uh, Secondly, you mentioned transparency reports uh, over how the companies are handling uh, these types of uh, controversies. Some people have suggested breaking up the platforms. That's merely going to fragment this content moderation issue. It's not going to really address uh, the question And the First Amendment question I've always found interesting because I like to point out freedom of speech does not include inciting violence. But you're right that these often turn out to be complicated cases. The details matter. Court cases involving First Amendment rights often takes years to work their way through the courts and get a final decision. So I think the one thing we know for sure is we're not going to have a quick resolution on any of these issues. I want to thank Quinta for sharing her thoughts with us today. At Brickings, we r- write regularly about science and digital technology. You can find more information on our Brookings Tech Tank blog located at brickings.edu. Thank you very much for tuning in.
0: Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast. And sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research
2: and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.